We're going to continue our Hebrew series, and um, if you guys need a Bible, there's probably one underneath the seat in front of you, and you can grab that and open up your Bibles. We're going to be uh, continuing this uh, series in Hebrews, and Lance, if you were here last week, took us through this awesome presentation of what the uh, sacrificial system looked like in the Old Testament, and today we're going to unpack the second half of chapter 9. Before we get going, uh, just if you guys didn't know me, I preached a couple times up here. I work with a ministry called College Golf Fellowship. So I'm a pastor, chaplain, missionary to college golfers all across the country. I work with the college and professional golfers. And I played college golf at Stanford University, played with a guy named Tiger Woods. He was a freshman when I was a senior. And uh, I used to have that great introduction that I taught him everything he knows, but I don't use that anymore because of the last couple years. But... uh <laughs> On a more serious note, it is very, very sad to see what has happened to him, and I pray often for him. In fact, I wrote him a letter, uh, shared the gospel that he might find hope and find contentment in a relationship with Christ versus the things of this world, because we all stumble, we all fall, we all need Christ. And so uh, I did connect with him at a PGA Tour event this last fall, I got to talk with him a little bit. Um, you know, he's still kind of wrestling through what's going on in his life, uh, but I would encourage you to pray for him as well, because not only us, but obviously those guys out there need Christ as well. So with that, let me uh, kind of dig into what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, it's a very difficult passage. There's a lot of uh, deep, heavy stuff. Um, as Lance kind of shared last week, and he kind of took us through what the high priest would do once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would sacrifice an animal, and he would drip blood on that Ark of the Covenant, representing God's presence, which would cover the sin and today, we get to make that transition and talk about the superior sacrifice, that once and for all sacrifice that Jesus offered for us, that sacrifice of himself. And it is interesting when we think about blood and we think about sacrifice and why that is so significant in the Bible, because really, the whole Bible is full with it. The, the, the word blood is actually mentioned 382 times in the Bible. Over 100 of those references are references to sacrifice, substitution, somebody taking the place of somebody else for the atonement of sin, so that a perfect and holy God could have a relationship with sinful, imperfect people. And from day one, all the way in the book of Genesis, God said, sin leads to death. He said to Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat, you will surely die. And yet, when they did eat, and they hid themselves from God, and they tried to cover up their sin because they felt naked for the first time, and they covered themselves with fig leaves, God shows up and says, where are you? As if God didn't know where they were. It's like playing hide-and-go-seek with a three-year-old. I've got a four-year-old son. And, of course, if you play hide-and-seek with a, with a three-year-old and they cover up their head and they think they can't see you, you don't think we can see them? Of course we can. But we play the game, don't we? And we say, where's Zachary? I don't know where he is. And, of course, he's standing right in the middle of the, <laughs> the living room with a, with a sheet over his head. And, and God knew exactly where Adam and Eve were, yet he gave them an opportunity to come out and say, here I am. And then God did something very significant. He sacrificed the first animal. They don't tell the whole picture, but we know that because he said, what? I will cover you now with the skin of an animal. The first sacrifice was actually made on behalf of Adam and Eve's sin. And their sin was covered, though there was a consequence and there was a separation, because sin leads to death and a separation from that perfect and holy God. God says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to bring you back. And the whole rest of the scriptures, 66 different books written by 45 different authors over a 1,500-year period of time in three different languages on three different continents, 
from people from all different walks of life. And yet in all of that, in these holy scriptures that we have, there's one message of redemption that takes place. The redemption of God bringing sinful and perfect people back into a right relationship with him. And this passage really unpacks the conclusion of what that sacrifice was for us. And yet we think about the cross and we think about the blood and it kind of seems a little bit morbid. And we think, why do we always talk about it? Why do we sing these songs? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Especially for a non-Christian, for a non-believer. What in the world is that? Why do we do that? It is a little bit bizarre. I mean, think about it like this. What if you were to go over to your neighbor's house and they invited you over for dinner for the first time and you sat down for a nice meal with your neighbors and you looked up on their wall and, they, and you saw a big, huge picture of somebody hanging from a noose. Wouldn't that be kind of weird? And they said, hey, could you pass the butter? I mean, that would be a little bit odd, wouldn't it? But we see a picture of Jesus hanging on somebody's wall, and we think, wow, they must be Christians. How cool is that? But what is that person doing? Jesus is hanging on a cross. It's a, it's, it's a form of the death penalty, a brutal form of the death penalty during the Roman Empire where a person would suffocate over hours and maybe days until they couldn't breathe any longer. Or what if you were on the side of the road, ran out of gas, and somebody pulls over? A truck pulls over, and, and a guy gets out and says, Hey, do you need some help? And you're like, Yeah, my, ga- my, my car ran out of gas. And he says, Hey, hop in my truck. I'll take you up to the next town, and we'll, we'll get you some gas. And you hop in the, the truck, and, and you see an electric chair hanging from the rearview mirror. Wouldn't that be kind of weird? Come on, let me help you out. You're like, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? But when we see a cross hanging from a rearview mirror, we don't think anything of it. We think, wow, that's pretty cool. Because the cross symbolizes something. The blood of Jesus did something for us. When we look up at that cross and we see Jesus hanging on it, we think of what that means. It should remind us that that should have been us. Because our sin was so serious that it took the son of the living God, the perfect one, the one who was without sin, to go to that cross and hang on it for you and for me to do something to forgive us of our sins. And that's what this passage really impacts, which leads us to the fill in the blank in front of us. Both our sin and his cleansing are beyond measure. Both our sin and his cleansing are beyond measure. We don't fully understand it, but hopefully this passage of Scripture will help us unpack what the significance of his blood really meant for us today. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11. I'm only going to read the first 12 verses of this 17-verse passage. And in 17 short verses, the word blood is mentioned 12 times. Verse number 11, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons and the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 
Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at the death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Isn't that nice that Lance left this passage for me to preach? (laughs) Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word. And God, as we look at this passage that is very, very deep and very heavy, as we consider the deep truths of this passage, would you... Send your spirit and guide us. Would you open our minds and our hearts to what you would have for us today? In Jesus' name, amen. The blood of Jesus. This passage almost shows it being thrown on everything, isn't it? It's sprinkled on the altar. It's sprinkled on the people. It's sprinkled everywhere. Because without the forgiveness of Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this whole idea of blood, again, is so rich. And the author of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish culture. People who had grown up understanding this whole sacrificial system, they understood how important blood was. But for us, it seems so weird. And so without understanding how these readers would have been understanding this, it's really hard for us to get a glimpse into what it means for us today. So as we go back and we look through the Old Testament, again, blood was used throughout every single cleansing ritual, every single act of atoning for sin. When God instituted a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, the word literally to make a covenant was translated in the Hebrew to cut a covenant because he would take an animal and any covenant was, was between two people, any promise, a vow that was made, whether it was a vow to be married or a vow between us and our God, what they did is they would take an animal and they would cut it in two and they would drip blood on the ground and they would walk between the two cuts of the animal and they would say, if I break my covenant, if I break my promise, may what happened to this animal happen to me. I use that illustration for marriage. Isn't that nice? And I say, if you're going to be committing yourself to a person, you're making a covenant. Tell death do us part, that we would walk across the blood because it was so important. In Exodus, we know the story of Moses being leading the Israelites out of slavery. And the last plague of the ten plagues, what was it? The firstborn son of all of Israel would be killed unless they would sacrifice a lamb. And they would take the lamb's blood and they would put it on the doorpost. And then when God saw the blood, he said, I'm satisfied and I will pass over it. And so all of the Israelites who put their trust in the blood were saved. And then as we move forward into the book of Leviticus, and if you guys have ever read through the Bible, you get through Genesis and Exodus and you're going, hey, I'm doing really well. And then we get to Leviticus and we go, what in the world am I reading? Because now all of these laws and all these ritualistic systems of how to be pure and how to be cleansed are all in it. And so 
in Leviticus 16 is what, 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 what Lance did of talking about this sacrifice that was made on the altar and the blood was dripped on top of the mercy seat and underneath and this blood covered us. And then in Leviticus 17, God gives this command to Moses and he says, For the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Only in the blood could a perfect and holy God be satisfied and be able to then look upon a sinful and perfect person and show and demonstrate his love in a loving relationship. Blood had to be spewed, had to be covered, had to be taken a life for us to be able to be in relationship with our God. I mean, if you just think about it real practically too, think about blood today. It's our life force, is it not? We need blood to live. And what happens when a, when a, when a little kid, I, I, have a, I have a four-year-old son and an eight-year-old daughter, and when my son trips and falls on the concrete, and he gets up and he says, I'm okay, Dad. I'm like, cool. Way to go, man. And then he looks down at his knee and it's bleeding. What happens? And he starts crying. Why? Because there's something in the blood that reminds us of pain. And though we shouldn't cry, we see blood and it does. It brings out an emotional response. How about a woman's cycle? I know you think, how in the world can you bring up a woman's cycle in a, in a sermon? But you know what? God provided an amazing illustration for us. What does that do? It cleanses out and it prepares for new life to take place. Blood is a powerful reminder of life. And as we look at this passage, we need to understand what this blood signifies. So let's dive in here. And as we look at this passage, I want us to remember that there's three paragraphs that this is broken into. And so there's three main areas. Really, the first four verses talk about the nature of the superior sacrifice that Jesus offered us. The next paragraph talks about the necessity of that sacrifice. Why did it have to be made? And then the final paragraph talks about the results of that superior sacrifice. So that's where we're going this morning. And let's dive in here in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. He has four contrasts that the author is trying to get out. And in this first two verses, he says, the high priest had to enter an earthly tent. Jesus entered heaven itself. And then he goes, the high priest had to offer animals and the blood of animals. Jesus offered his own blood. And that sacrifice that the high priest had to make year in and year out on that day of atonement, Jesus said, I have offered my own self as a once and for all sacrifice. It was a willing sacrifice and it was a once and for all sacrifice that he offered us, his own blood. I mean, think about the animals back in that day. I mean, in this, in this society, knowing that animals were sacrificed over and over and over, and it had to be a perfect animal. So these little lambs and these goats and these bulls and these calves and whatever it is that they were sacrificing, do you think any of them were coming forward saying, take me, take me? No. But I could just see if an animal really understood what was going on and they knew it was only a perfect sacrifice that would be taken. Can you imagine these lambs like running up the side of a hill and hitting a tree so that their ear would get bloody and so then they wouldn't be a perfect sacrifice anymore so they could live a little bit longer? Yet Jesus said, I am the sinless one. I am the unblemished one. I am the perfect sacrifice. And I willingly give up 
my life for you. What does he say in John 10? He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. He willingly laid it down because he knew that was the only way for us to be forgiven. In John it talks about Jesus the night before he was arrested and he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. And when Judas comes with the soldiers and they come forward and Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says in one word, I am he. And the Bible tells us that all the soldiers dropped to the ground. Just from that one word, I am he. You don't think Jesus could have gotten out of that situation? Yet he knew it was the only way for us to come back to him. And he says, go ahead, take me. Because I have the authority to lay my life down and I have the authority to take it back up again. And what did he do in verse 12 at the end of that? By means of his own blood, he secured an eternal redemption. He has bought us back. That is a great word, redemption. It comes from the slave market. People could buy a slave, retain it for their own use. They could buy a slave or sell it for a profit. Or they could buy a slave and they could set him free. Not very many people did that. This is a very special word that we use all throughout the scriptures to talk about what Jesus has done for us. Is that he has paid the ransom price. And what was the currency that he used? His own blood, again, to set us free. And then in verse 13, he comes up with a fourth contrast. He contrasts the earthly tent to the heavenly tent that Jesus entered. He first offered animal blood versus Jesus' blood. And then he says we have to do it repeatedly in the Old Testament. And now it's a once and for all sacrifice. And now he's going to show us what that sacrifice did. Lance talked about the external cleansing or the external covering that that sacrifice did. But Jesus' sacrifice, as his next couple of verses are going to show, goes inward. And it cleans the inside of us. It wasn't just a covering. It was a cleaning. Now, I travel a lot with my ministry with College Golf Fellowship. And I lead Bible studies. And we do outreach events. And we do conferences and retreats. And when I'm gone, my wife has to take care of our kids and, and take care of the home. And I came home from a trip one day. And I walked into the house, and I see on the carpet a paper towel covering something. And I kind of walked by, and I thought, that's kind of weird. And then I went back in there, and I picked up the paper towel, and I said, oh, my gosh, it was a pile of cat throw-up sitting on the carpet. And I'm like, what in the world did my wife do that she covered up this thing and didn't clean it? So I went over to my wife, and I said, why is there cat throw-up covered with a piece of paper towel? And she looked at me, and she said, it's been one of those weeks. I've cleaned up enough dirty diapers, I've cleaned up enough dishes, and I'm not cleaning up the cat throw-up. So I covered it up and I said, you can clean it up. (laughs) And I smiled and I said, yes, dear, I will go clean that up right now. But I thought, what a powerful illustration of what we can do. We cover up sin, or the high priest can cover up our sin, and yet Jesus can go inside and clean our sin. And look at these next two verses of what it says here. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. And I know you're going, what in the world does that mean? Well, the reference to the blood of goats is, of course, the Day of Atonement. The reference to the sprinkling of defiled persons was the people who had actually come in contact with a dead body. That would make them unclean. And so they needed to take the ashes of a red 
female cow. And they would burn that, and they would use those ashes to symbolize the cleansing of somebody who touched a dead person. So, whether it was the blood of bulls and goats or the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if that was good enough to sanctify the purification of the flesh, meaning cover the outside of you so you look clean on the outside, how much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God Talk about covering versus cleansing. God says, I want to go to the very heart, and I want to cleanse you from the inside out. And without the blood of Christ, that perfect once and for all sacrifice, all we can do is hopefully cover the outside. And it's interesting, because if I asked you the question, who did Jesus die for? What would you say? He died for me, the sinner, right? He died for us. Yet this passage says he offered his blood to god in verse 14 now of course he died for us as well but he offered himself first to god to satisfy the demand of our sin because sin leads to death and so in order for god to be able to view us the way that he views us we have to recognize that jesus had to pay the penalty for the sin that we deserved and so when jesus offered himself on that cross And he hung there. And the sin of the world was put upon him. And he cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? It was at that single moment when God turned his back. Because all of our sin was poured poured onto him. And he was able to bear the weight of that. And so God was able to be satisfied in that act of sacrifice. That there was a substitute that took our place. I came across an illustration as I was studying this of a, of a ruler in Tibet. And in order to make sure that they didn't have crime in Tibet, this ruler over this culture said, we are going to have strict consequences to actions. And if anybody was caught stealing, they would have their hand cut off and amputated. And somebody was brought forward, a young boy who was caught stealing, and that boy was brought forth to the ruler. And the ruler said, of course, we know the punishment, we must cut his hand off. And then he looked down at the boy and he recognized him as his own son. And so he had a problem. How could I cut off my own son's hand? But if I let my son have this punishment, I don't look like a very loving father. So what did he do? He said, the punishments must stand. Because I'm a just ruler and I'm fair. And the punishment must stand. But then he reached out and he says, take my hand instead. And he offered himself in his hand, and he took the penalty that his son deserved, thus maintaining his just nature and his loving character. And in the same essence, that's what Jesus did for us, so that he could maintain his just nature at the same time, show us his great love and his grace to be able to forgive us. He offered himself without blemish to God first, but then for us to purify our conscience. Because what do we do when we sin? We typically run and hide, just like Adam and Eve did, don't we? We want to cover it up or we want to justify our actions. Instead of just saying, I blew it, please forgive me, we want to run and we want to hide. My four-year-old son this last fall was washing his hands after going to the bathroom. 
and he tried to dry his hands up on the, uh, on the towel, and he pulled the towel off the rack by accident, and so he wasn't quite tall enough to put it back up there, so he tried to throw it back up on the rack, and he missed. He tried it again and missed again, and the third, third time he threw it up there, it went in the toilet. And he freaked out, and he said, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in trouble. I just threw a towel into the toilet. So he was too afraid to come to daddy or to mommy, so he went to his next best friend, his big sister, Jessica. And he said, Jessica, I just threw my towel into the toilet. What are we going to do? And Jessica came to his aid, and they walked in there, and she reached into that toilet and pulled out that towel. She wrung it out, and she folded it up, and she put it on top of the toilet. And then she covered it with the Kleenex box. Isn't that what we do? We cover our sin and we hide. And that wasn't even sin. That was what was so crazy. But if my son was thinking that he had to cover that up, what's he really going to do if he really does do something hurtful to himself or to somebody else? And he finds himself in sin. And don't we do the same thing? Don't we run and we hide and we think, I hope God doesn't see what I just did. Or I hope my wife doesn't see what I just did. Or my husband or my child or my parent or whatever it is. And we feel guilty. Because something happens when we sin. There's a separation that is put between us and our God because we were created to be connected in relationship with our God. And when we sin, we get scared and we fall away. And we say, oh my gosh, God can't forgive me. And so we have a guilty conscience that comes over us. And this blood that Jesus sacrificed purifies our conscience and takes away that guilt inside of us. But in order to understand that, we need to understand how God views that sacrifice. If we want to understand the value of the blood, we must accept God's valuation of it. And if I do not understand the value that God places on that blood, I can't understand the value for myself. If God said that was enough, Jesus' death on the cross was enough for me, why isn't it enough for you? And if we truly understand that, Now we can bring our sin into the light and we can say, you know what? I am imperfect. God knows I'm imperfect and I can come to him and I can approach him with confidence because he is a graceful, merciful God who will forgive me and walk with me and pick me up again. And that's the God who sent his son Jesus into this world so that we wouldn't have to bear that guilt any longer. Now there's typically two types of people in this world. There's the self-righteous person who says, I don't need that. I can justify my actions and I can explain myself away and I can do it on my own. I don't need that. That was the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Look what I've done for you, dad. And then there was the younger brother who ran away and squandered everything and then thought, I don't even know if I can come back. And that's the second type of person in the world. That's the self-loather. The person who says, my sin is too great to be forgiven. There's too much in my past and I can't really be forgiven of it. And somewhere we kind of fall in between that self-righteous person and that self-loather. And we think, I don't need God or God's never going to be able to forgive my past. But I'm here to tell you that God is able More than able, and that's why we have the cross. That's why we have the blood. So that we can look upon it and we can remember that that should have been us, but it wasn't. It was his son. Early on in my marriage, my wife and I got married. We had a lot of junk in our past. We came from broken families, multiple divorces on both sides. We had a lot of alcoholism, a lot of other issues that we kind of brought into our marriage And having to now learn how to live in relationship with one another as husband and wife becoming one. And three years into our marriage, we thought, what did we do? 
Did we make a mistake? Why are we fighting all the time? Why are we arguing? Why can't we get along? And my wife kind of erred on that self-loather. I have too much stuff in my past. And I don't know if God can forgive me. And I don't know if you truly forgive me. And I didn't do a very good job because I came in with this self-righteous attitude. And I said, we can just fix the problems. We can do it on our own. Come on, let's just work harder. Which then pushed her even farther away because she felt guilty because she wasn't able to provide what she hoped to provide. And we had to go back and we had to understand what the blood meant for both of us. That even my self-righteousness was just as bad as some of the stuff that she was carrying and she was burdening from her past. And we had to take that to the cross together and we had to say, Lord, forgive us both. And when we understand that forgiveness, only then can we extend forgiveness to one another. And that's the practicality of what this blood is for us. That he didn't just cover our sins. He went inside and he gave us a new heart and he cleansed us from the inside out so that we could walk in relationship with God and in relationship with one another. And that's the beauty of what the Christian life is, that it is good news. So that our consciences are purified from dead works to serve the living God. So often we think we need to do something. We need to offer up dead works. That we need to read our Bible more. We need to go to church. We need to tithe. We need to share our faith with our neighbors. We need to do, 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 do. And then maybe God will accept me. And so we approach God on our behalf of what we have done. And those are dead works, the Bible says. And he says, why don't you approach God and serve the living God knowing that you can't do anything But he has finished the work. Amen? In verse 15, he transitions now. And he transitions into the second section of saying, this is the necessity of this superior sacrifice. And he furthers this argument of the necessity of the blood, the necessity of the death of Jesus. And he uses two arguments to kind of draw this out. And he uses two really cool ways to argue, one from a kind of a secular vantage point and one from a religious vantage point. And the first one, he uses a play on the word diathake in the Greek. Diathake literally is translated covenant. So anytime he uses the word covenant, that's diathake. And up till this point in the Hebrews, every time diathake is used, it's translated covenant. But you'll see here in this next passage, all of a sudden it gets translated as will. And he plays on the word diathake. In the same sense that we have a trunk, right? You can have a trunk of an elephant, you can have a trunk of a car, or you can have a trunk of a suitcase, right? And if people at this time could argue by using kind of plays on words, they thought they were really studious. That came from the Alexandrian school of thought back in that day. And so look at his argument here. He says, therefore, he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, diathake, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Notice that's the third time he used eternal. Eternal redemption in verse 12, eternal spirit that led Jesus to the cross, and now he's given us an eternal inheritance. How? Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Meaning, we were all under the first covenant because we needed to obey all the laws, and if we didn't obey the laws, we were left in our sin, And everybody in the Old Testament weren't saved by their righteous acts or good deeds or even the sacrificial system. They were saved by the blood of Jesus. And they looked forward to that moment. We look back to that moment. And then he transitions in verse 16. For where a diathake, where a will is involved, all of a sudden changes because of the context. The death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death. 
since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. What is that saying? A will demands death. The covenant was established, and it didn't get inaugurated until someone died. And we get the eternal inheritance of that will that was written for us. And then in verse 18, he uses the second argument, kind of the religious one. And he goes back to the Old Testament system again. And he says that forgiveness demands blood. And look what it says. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Weird, I have to say, he's sprinkling people with blood. We're going to talk about that. And this is what he said. This is what Moses said. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood with both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. It's almost as if he's saying everything, you guys. Isn't this crazy? Everything is purified with blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So what is all this talking about? He's talking about four different Old Testament ceremonial cleansing rituals. When he talks about the water, the scarlet wool, and the hyssop, he's talking about leprosy. And a person needed to be cleansed of leprosy, or that person who touched that dead animal, or that dead body, they needed to be cleansed. Hyssop was an amazing little flower, a little white flower that blossomed, and they used it in all these rituals in the Old Testament. If you go back and study it, it's amazing. Water, scarlet hyssop were used in the rites of cleansing lepers. Hyssop was also used in the Passover. So in the Old Testament, when they sacrificed that lamb and they wiped the blood on the doorposts, you know what they used to wipe the door on the bud? They used hyssop. How cool is that? And then hyssop was also used in Psalm 51. If anybody remembers what Psalm 51 was all about. Psalm 51 was when David had sinned with Bathsheba, committed adultery, then murdered her husband. And finally, he confesses his sin to the Lord, and he says this in Psalm 51. Purify me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So the author of Hebrews is bringing in all these Old Testament references to show you how serious the system was. And then he uses Moses as the most important understanding of the institution and the inauguration of that first covenant. And I want to take a little bit of time to unpack this. So turn to Exodus chapter 24. And we're going to look at this passage Just before Exodus 24, Moses went up onto the mountain of Mount Sinai and he received the Ten Commandments. Remember, God just led them out of slavery. He just redeemed them. He freed them and he gives them the law. And he says, this is how to live in a right relationship with God and how to live in a right relationship with people. He never said, this is how you get saved. He said, I already saved you. Now this is how to live in response to what I've already done for you. And so Moses comes down off the mountaintop and he announces this. And in verse 3 of chapter 24, check this out. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar on the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said this. 
all that the Lord has spoken we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Think about that scene right now. I so much wanted to put a little splash zone right here and bring up some hyssop or something and start throwing blood out here. But I thought that might be a little bit inappropriate. But that's the scene that's going on. You know, when you go to Disneyland and you go to the 4D rides and, you know, they have some animal that spits and then the water spews out into your faces. That's what's going on right here. There was a covenant that was made. Remember to cut a covenant? Blood was shed so that covenant was inaugurated. And as a physical reminder, as all these, there was two million people announcing that day, we will follow, we will obey. And Moses threw blood in their faces to remind them of the seriousness of this sin. That if they fell short, if they broke the covenant, blood would need to be shed. That's a physical reminder. Just like when our kid skins his knee and looks at the blood and starts to cry. Every time we think of blood, every time we think of that cross, we should be able to say, that should have been me. Because I could never live up to it. But that's okay because there's a grace-filled God who did it for us. And he says, I know that you couldn't do it. That's why I sent Jesus to the cross. Because forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is so costly that it cost God his son. I mean, think about it like this. If my four-year-old boy is swinging his baseball bat in the front yard and accidentally hits my car, I'm going to be ticked, aren't I? But I'm going to forgive my son. And am I going to demand my four-year-old son to write me a check to cost to fix that dent in my car? Of course not. I'm going to forgive that son, and I'm going to have to pay myself. But it's going to cost something. Forgiveness always costs something. Because relationships are broken when we sin and when we fall short. And though we may forgive, our forgiveness isn't like God's forgiveness because we aren't fully just and we aren't fair like God is. We forgive as one attribute of God, but we don't see the cost associated. But our hearts are broken when we are sinned against, but we offer forgiveness. God was able to maintain his just nature and his loving nature and offer forgiveness freely to us but it cost him the blood of his son. This last paragraph is a great summary of what he's been talking about, and he repeats why Jesus' sacrifice is better than the Old Testament system. And he uses three words. The word appear shows up three times to signify what Jesus has done for us as the result of this sacrifice. And he uses the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense. So check this out as we read through this last section. Here are the results of what Jesus did on that cross. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands. He didn't go into that man-made tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but he entered heaven itself. Now to appear, there's the first time, in the present tense, in the presence of God on our behalf. He is in God's presence today, interceding for us every day. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world It was a once and for all sacrifice. But as it is, he appeared once and for all, past tense, 
at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That word to put away sin is the strongest word to describe the works and the effects of that sacrifice. It means to cancel, to put completely away, to annul, to be said it's paid in full. There is nothing else that you can do. It has been completely done with. It wasn't covered. It was annulled and canceled. Verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. I know we don't like to talk about that a lot, but we all have a guarantee. Actually, two guarantees in this world. We're going to die and we're going to pay taxes. Are we not? What are we going to do on that judgment day? Are we going to stand before our Lord and try and justify our actions? Or are we going to say, the blood of Jesus justified me and declared me not guilty? Those are our only options. Everyone is appointed to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many in the past, will appear a second time, will appear a third time in the future. Not to deal with sin, because he's already dealt with it, he finished the work, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are we eagerly waiting for our Savior to return? In the same way that the high priest would enter into that Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice, and the whole nation would wait eagerly to see if that high priest would come back out To know if their sacrifice was accepted and God had covered their sins. Are we waiting eagerly for Christ to come back? To bring us to where he is. Because he has done a work that dealt with our past sin. He's now in heaven interceding on our behalf. Walking with us in relationship with us. That we can approach his throne with confidence. Knowing that he will extend mercy and grace to help us in our greatest time of need. And he's coming back. Are we waiting for that day? He dealt with the past penalty of our sin. And now, as we deal with the power of sin in our lives, he is with us, helping us overcome that. The Bible calls that sanctification. And one day, he will come back and bring us out of the presence of sin forever. That is the good news of the message today. But we must understand that it is only through the blood. There is nothing that we can do. There was an evangelist back in the early 50s who would travel around and share the gospel, share the good news of Jesus Christ. And he would present the gospel and he would give an invitation and many people would come forward, kind of like Billy Graham did. And he would set up tents and then he'd go and he'd travel around and in one city he shared the gospel and hundreds of people came forward as they placed their trust in Jesus Christ. And there was one young man sitting in the back who felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, yes, you want to go forward. Yes, you want to receive this eternal redemption. And yet he was too afraid of what the people around him might think and so he didn't go forward. And so the meeting ended And the boy went home with his head held low. And he was sitting at home and he said, I need to go back, I need to go back. And so he went back over there and they were tearing down the tents and picking up the seats and getting ready to move on to the next city. The boy went over to the evangelist and he said, what must I do to be saved? Is it too late? And the evangelist looked at him and he said, it is too late. And the boy said, what do you, because the service is over, it's too late? He goes, no, it's too late because the work has already been finished on the cross. And he went on to explain again the gospel of the good news, that though we are sinful and perfect people, incapable of doing anything to earn our salvation, he said the blood of Jesus was the finished work, that you need to place your trust in what he did for you. There is nothing that you can do. 
And just a few weeks ago, Lance gave a great invitation. And he doesn't do that very often, and he asked people to come forward. And there were many, many people who came forward that week and who placed their trust in Jesus Christ for their first time. But I know that there were still people sitting back out there who didn't go forward, who wanted to, who were afraid that what would people think around me and didn't. And I'm here to tell you that it's never too late to receive the free gift that Jesus extends to us, to understand the seriousness of our sin, but to understand the more superior sacrifice of Jesus that covers it, that cleanses it, and purifies us from the inside out. And so I'm here to say it's not about coming forward necessarily. It's not even about praying a prayer. Prayers don't save you. Jesus saves you. And wherever you're at it, at any point in your day, if you want to cry out to your Savior and say, I need you, you can do that. And I would encourage you to do that today. And if you want to come forward and pray afterwards with somebody to fully understand what that is, I would encourage you to do that. For those of you who are suffering from guilty consciences, I want you to understand the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse you. That you need to bask in his grace. That you need to bask in his mercy. And you need to know that there is nothing in your path that cannot be forgiven. And that you need to stop thinking that there's too much. That God can't forgive me. You may have placed your faith in Jesus, but you're still walking in guilt. And you're afraid to bring to light what it is that's deep inside of you. The blood is sufficient to cover that. And God says, share that. Bring that out into the light. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin, not just some of it, from all of it. And for those of you who maybe have some self-righteousness and some pride and saying, you know what, I'm pretty good on my own. I've been there before. It's not a good place. It's not a healthy place. In fact, in the parable of the prodigal son, that older brother was more lost than the younger brother because the younger brother finally came back and received the forgiveness that his father gave him. But yet when we are steeped in pride and self-righteousness, we aren't able to understand the beauty of what Jesus did for us. Because when we see that cross and when we remember the blood, we need to understand that that should stir something in our hearts. That our affections should be changed. That we should be moved to respond in obedience. Not begrudgingly because we're afraid that God's going to hit us over the head with a sledgehammer if we don't do the right things. But we want to obey Because we see what he did for us. That we want to worship our God because he's worthy of our worship. Because he laid down his life for us. May we be moved by the blood of Jesus. He offered an eternal redemption. He gave us an eternal spirit to dwell inside of us. And he promises us an eternal inheritance. May that move us to follow him with all of our hearts. Pray with me. Jesus, Lord Jesus, thank you for the blood. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you have done for us. Though this passage is heavy and there's a lot of things in here that are difficult to understand, we know one thing. You died for us. You took our place. You offered a substitute. Because when judgment is overhanging us, we need a substitute. And you paid the price. God, thank you for that. May that move us. May that stir us. May we not be the same as we walk out of this place because we know that we have a God who loves us enough to step out of heaven, to enter our world, to suffer on our behalf, to spill his blood, and to save us. God, we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.